welcome to a brand new series of the National Trust podcast. I'm Sean Douglas, senior podcast producer at the National Trust. And in this episode, I'll be exploring the concept of the National Trust property. For many, the mention of a National Trust property conjures up vistas of grand country piles and sweeping manicured lawns. But dig a little deeper and you might be surprised just what you find. National Trust properties come in many shapes and sizes, from the imposing turrets of Compton Castle to the cramped living rooms of suburban Liverpool, and even the jokes and shenanigans at the numerous trust-owned pubs. But by far the most numerous of trust-owned properties are tenanted properties, ones that you and I could call home. These are often in idyllic rural locations, but today I'm heading to South East London to a National Trust tenanted property with a bit of a difference. I'm just making my way through the streets of Raynham and this doesn't feel like the typical approach to a National Trust property. There's no farmland, no trees and no clipboard wielding steward. Instead, there's the Sing Chinese Takeaway, the La Hope Balti House and the Fombella Afro-Caribbean Stool. And nestled amongst all of this is Raynham Hall, which looks like the set from Jane Austen lost its way and found itself stranded in a South London suburb. Raynham Hall stands four storeys tall, built with the straight lines and lattice windows typical of Georgian architecture. Originally built for Captain John Hurl in 1729, for the next 230 years, the property changed hands between a succession of private owners until in 1949 it came into the hands of the National Trust. The building was in disrepair and it was thought the best way to secure its future was for it to become a tenanted property. Each tenant has been responsible for internal renovations and guided tours on selected days. But in 2004, with help from the Heritage Lottery Fund, Raynham Hall transitioned from a tenanted property to one that is permanently open to the public. And while Raynham Hall is closed to the public due to current COVID restrictions, I've arranged for you and I to be taken on a personal guided tour. Hiya. Hi. Is it Sally? It is. House and Gardens Manager? Yes, welcome to Ring Hall. Thank you. Sorry about my voice. I've got this mask on, so it's, I'm a little bit muffled. As you step inside the hall, the clean lines of its exterior continue in its angular staircase, black and white chequered stone floor and marble panelled walls. This is, this is quite opulent. It is. I was just thinking, if I was a little bit quicker, maybe I could have been a tenant of a place like this. Possibly. The last tenants only moved out, I suppose, just a few years ago. Could you tell me about the different types of people that have rented this property? Yeah, it's been a really eclectic mix of people over the years. So from architectural historians to artists, musicians, filmmakers, and then kind of local families. But probably our most notable tenant was Anthony Denny. To most, Anthony Denny isn't a household name, but it's likely he's influenced the clothes you wear how you decorate and furnish your home, and even the food you have in your larder. Denny was born in 1913. He attended the Ipswich School of Art and then later went on to study at the Royal College of Art. His reputation as a photographer was growing and it seemed like he was at the foothill of a budding creative career. 
but in 1939, with the start of the Second World War, his career was cut short. But even a war wasn't going to dampen Denny's drive. Denny travelled abroad as part of his service and that love for photography never went away and it's something that came through in his travel photography. At almost the same time Denny was mastering the magic of photography, across the pond in New York, a publisher called Condé Montrose Nast was mastering the magic of the magazine when he purchased a failing New York publication called the Society Gazette. Here's Robin Muir, photographic historian and curator. Condé Nast's vision was to make it a nationwide fashion magazine. He acquired the highest quality paper stock he could. He modernised its topography and its layout. It would be the first to publish colour fashion photographs. By 1916, it was being imported to Britain and was selling on import 16,000 copies a month. This little society, Gazette, you will probably recognize my name. In 1909, the Society Gazette became Vogue magazine. In 1947, Denny's travel photography is getting noticed and some of his work lands on the desk of Audrey Withers, the then editor of Vogue magazine. Audrey Withers had not only maybe seen some of Denny's travel photography, but also photography for a children's book called Uncle Auntie's Album. Audrey Withers was so impressed by his work, she offered him a job as a star photographer at Vogue magazine. Back in the 21st century, now that Raynham Hall had transitioned from a tenanted to a permanent visitor property, the National Trust had a bit of a dilemma. Raynham Hall hasn't had any long family dynasties in residence, uh, and that means that it doesn't have an indigenous collection of furniture. So that is a challenge for a National Trust property, but we saw it as a huge opportunity to reinvent the building. Inspired by Denny, Raynham Hall has been turned into a life-size magazine dedicated to the life and work of the man himself. So how do you turn a property into a magazine? Like a magazine, when you come into the entrance hall, you're able to see our page of contents. Each room in the building uh, corresponds to our different magazine features. Denny's dining room, that's our contents page, so page 11. Uh, we can walk around the back to see our editor's note, page 13. Um, but the room I really want to show you is Vogue Accessories, page 42. And we're going to have to go up to the first floor for that. This is great. I've never walked through a magazine before. It's like being in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Well, this is us flicking through the pages uh, as we get ready to go into our next feature room. Even though Denny had impressed one of the most important people in fashion, just like every new recruit, he had to work his way through the ranks as a rookie Vogue photographer. As a new photographer, you get started off on accessories pages, scarves and shoes and socks and walking sticks. But in time, you would hope to graduate to becoming a fully-fledged fashion photographer, you know, photographing models on location or in the studio. So welcome to the Vogue accessories room. On display are copies of Vogue from the 1950s, featuring Denny's accessories photography. In one, the pages are filled with swirled hats and diamond brooches, and the other, the Paris Collection's Shoes Edition, which on its front cover features a model clutching a bright red stiletto. You would maybe normally expect to see a model wearing the shoe, and instead this is a real close-up on her face as she's adoring and gazing into the shoe. It's a very, very interesting front cover. 
That's quite unusual for a still life like that to be put on the cover of the magazine. He elevated what was a rather pedestrian form of the discipline. His accessories, photographs, give us a hint of what's going to come when he takes to fashion photography proper. So how did Denny's career progress? Did he go on to shooting models? If we walk through, we can see some shots that Denny did for Vogue magazine of models. So we're seeing some really stunning photos through this projection. This is a kind of beige gown, but she's in front of a huge piece of furniture and a very vibrant blue and white wall. It's a model again in a full length outfit, but your eye is completely drawn to these artworks behind her. It doesn't seem like the model or the clothes are important in this image. Yeah, it's exactly one of the things that makes Denny's photography so intriguing, that for Denny, the setting was so important. But also, she said, sometimes the focus of his pieces is very different from what you might expect of a magazine trying to showcase the clothing and accessories. I think it's fair to say, and it's not detrimental to say it, that his models are sometimes slightly lifeless. And I think that's because he's treating them a little like decorative ornaments. So I think he does that wonderful thing of seamlessly evolving from a completely competent fashion photographer, but moving and finding a different role within the magazine. In 1951, Denny becomes Vogue's first and only decorations editor. But shortly after taking up this role, a new opportunity arises which perfectly matches Denny's unique skill set. House and Garden, a sister magazine to Vogue, is launched and published by the same company, the Condé Nast Publications. And while Vogue magazine did have interiors and recipes scattered amongst its pages of style and fashion, it was House and Gardens that brought all these disparate features together in one magazine. The great thing that he brought to House and Garden was the ability to make room sets so he could construct entire rooms in order to shoot various objects. Denny has such an extraordinary eye that when he steps out and starts to take photographs in other people's homes, he's able to bring everything that he's brought to the studio. Back at Raynham Hall, we walk into page 47, Objects to Art, and on display are retro pages from House and Gardens and Vogue magazine. They profile interiors at the height of late 50s and early 60s style. Angular leopard print sofas, bulbulous angle poised lamps, and cuboid oak veneer furniture. But alongside these magazines are some curious objects. Japanese style fabric, a tea set, and an egg. So yeah, here we can see an orange glass egg that's on a stand. But side by side with it, you can see, yeah, a Vogue front cover. And if you look at the model who is reclining on a sofa in a beautiful dress, the egg is just behind her on the stand. And again, another image of a very interesting and striking interior. Um, And that egg is placed on the coffee table in the centre of the room. And this is something that we know Denny would do, would take objects of uh, curiosity and things he particularly liked um, and for an interesting visual cue would would place that in the middle of a photograph. This was almost kind of a maker's mark. This is a little bit of him in these images. In 1960, Denny's career takes an unusual turn. With the help of celebrity cook Elizabeth David, Denny moves from influencing the taste in people's homes to the taste and flavours on their tongues. Elizabeth David is 
without question, the preeminent cookery writer of the early post-war era. She introduced the British public to olive oil, oregano, garlic, basil, uh, courgettes. Um, you know, these were mostly untasted novelties to much of austerity-worn Britain. Elizabeth David didn't so much restore middle-class women's confidence in cooking as invent it. Think of the modern celebrity chef with their branded cookware and numerous books. Well, Elizabeth David was already doing this in the 50s. She had her cookware shop in Plimlico and released book after book championing the food of France and the Mediterranean diet. She was also well known for her personality. Now, Elizabeth David is a notoriously prickly person. And in fact, Elizabeth David says herself to, to Vogue's editor, you can't do colour pictures of food. I think they would look bloody awful. And it's worth remembering that food photography is a novelty for Vogue and House and Garden. You know, previously recipes would be accompanied by line drawings or table settings. The next stop on our tour is page 25, Food at its Best, where on display are a selection of David's cookbooks and Denny's food photography. There's a real change in direction, I think, to move away from illustrations of food um, into quite striking photography. As you scan the exhibits, you can clearly see the transition from the pastoral line drawings of David's earlier publications to the drama and theatrics of Denny's imagery. Just describe that one at the top, because that looks really... You talk about theatrical, mm -hmm. I mean, that does look like a scene out of Shakespeare. This is Denny setting up for a Christmas feast. So you can see stewed pears piled up uh, in pyramid shapes. You can see what looks like candied fruits. There's silverware everywhere, goblets. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is the lighting. I've never seen food lit like that. You know, when you want to create um, a horror film, you, you, you want to light your face, but it's done <laughs> with food but it looks delicious and regal and sumptuous and elegant. So if you ever see the, the kind of amazing Dutch paintings of kind of 17th century food arrangements or flowers, it really has that look to it, where, as you said, most of it is a dark image. You can imagine this is candlelight. You really feel like a supper is about to take place. What kind of dates are we talking about that he would have been working with Elizabeth David? So as you can see here, this book was uh, published in 1960. Um, but really from the 1960s onwards, the mid 60s, um, it's when Denny does less photography work for the magazines owned by Condé Nast. Um, and that's around the time that Denny comes into the Raynham Hall story. So I'm gonna take you through to page 11 where you can see how Denny would have furnished some of the rooms. Denny scrupulously restores and renovates nearly all of Raynham Hall from the principal bedroom right through to the parlours. In Denny's version of Raynham Hall, you might see an oversized painting in the neo-baroque style, which is so deep with paint as to be almost three-dimensional. You know, we'd hang above a Fornacetti musicale chair of the 1950s. Adjacent to it, a 1710 writing desk, and above that, a Mexican religious painting of a completely different period. He brings to Raynham Hall Russian crystal, Mexican silver, 20th century tapestry work, Delft furniture, Delft blue china, tortoiseshell, null chandeliers. He brings so much extraordinary uh, vibrancy from different periods into this extraordinary uh, period home. This would have been his dining room. There's a lot going on. <laughs> Uh, there's a gold chandelier with candles. Um, there's a lot of tortoiseshell and animal print. 
Yeah, it's, it's not what I'd expect <laughs> for a National Trust property. I mean, it's a little bit garish. It reminds me a little bit of um, kind of 19's morning television. Big breakfast, dare I say. Well, he's definitely making a statement. Um, quite, quite something to walk into. I think the National Trust took a bit of a risk when they agreed to grant the lease of Raynham Hall to Denny. He certainly came with a great reputation as, you know, the dealer of decorating, I think, as the Daily Telegraph calls him. But I suspect they were not really prepared. You know, he does paint rooms black. You know, he, he's created another world within this extraordinary period home, one that bears little relation to the exterior of the building. Did he know anything about 1700s design? He did. So Denny, I think in the library that he would have had at the hall here, we know was really interested in the history of 17th and 18th century architecture, taste, style, paintings and fine art were big influences on him. Despite Denny's sometimes divisive design rules, like painting dark rooms with dark colours to make them look even darker, there's one space at Raynham Hall where Denny creates a stunning homage to John Hull, the hall's original owner, and his vision of a home that crystallised the 1700s aesthetic. And to see this, we make our way back to the entrance hall where our tour first started. He gilds it and he marbleizes it. And it, of all the rooms, I guess, in Raynham Hall is the one that is truest to the house's original beginnings. Visitors often come into the entrance hall and see the marbled paint effect and think this is the original paint scheme. And actually, it's really interesting when we can say to visitors, actually, this is done by our 1960s tenant. And you know it's 1960s because Denny went to the attention and detail of marbling things like plug sockets, which you can see in the skirting, which definitely do not date from the 1720s. Denny sounds amazing, but do you think he is worthy of a whole exhibition? You know, would it be more National Trust to go back to the 1700s and the origin story of this place. So this is our third exhibition in a series. We started with Captain John Hull. He was the sea merchant for whom the hall was built. The second exhibition we did, we knew that Raynham Hall was a day nursery between 1943 to 54 as part of the war effort. And we knew as part of an oral history project that there were people out there who came here as children. Memories of the children that attended the nursery were captured as part of the second exhibition. And one of those children was Janice Cunningham, who recalls how her mother would rush her to Raynham Hall every morning. We used to walk, and, and as she was five foot ten, she walked rather quickly. So I had to skip along to Raynham Hall. In contrast to the antique furniture of Denny's Raynham Hall, the Raynham Hall that Janice knew was, well, just a little bit more functional. On the top floor, there were potties for the girls, a plank of wood with about five potties in it. I remember sitting in a little alcove with a little boy called Jimmy Burgess. I remember a nurse and her daughter was also here. Also. Um, my husband, he came along when I was about two or three. 
I met him later when I was uh, nearly 15. I was asked round to dinner at Roger's mum's house. And uh, she opened the door and she went, oh, I remember you. I remember you from Raynham Hall. At 18, we got engaged and at 20, we got married in the church next door. Janice and Roger were married in 1965 while Denny was still at Raynham Hall. He may have even overheard their celebrations. We seemed to spend a lot of time in the garden mm -hmm. and we weren't allowed to go the other side of it. I remember a, a, a man coming out on the other side of the fence with a stick and geese. And coming back and seeing all this, just took it for granted, not realising what a wonderful place I grew up in. And that garden that Janice and Denny were so fond of is the last stop on our tour. Most National Trust properties that I come to, the lawns are pristine, the planting's <laughs> exquisite. I'm not saying this place is rough already, but it doesn't have that polished feel to it. This is a walled garden, it's nearly three acres, so quite small for the National Trust. But that's a big green space in urban and industrial Raynham. So this is basically a community garden, is that quite rare? It is quite rare to have a community garden and a community gardener. We talk about co-creation a lot, and that's part of our approach to make sure that at least 60% of everything that you see on display at Raynham Hall has been made with and by local people. Would you say that you're part of that as well? So I am a local girl. Growing up in this borough, I was not always aware of the local history. We would often go to the big free museums in South Kensington. They're a train journey away. When I saw the news about a job here that was almost on my kind of home doorstep, so I just had to apply. This was never about the National Trust landing in Raynham and saying, we're here now, we're opening a visitor attraction. We could never have just opened the doors and relied on the National Trust Oakley for people to come in. It was much more about engaging people in the process. Their ongoing support in the future, I think is what's gonna keep places like Raynham Hall alive and going. Visiting a place like Raynham Hall does make you appreciate the variety of properties that the National Trust owns or looks after. And while we're known for our grand stately homes, they can be places for a pint, a place to learn about local history, and increasingly in urban centres like London and Birmingham, they're becoming places to serve the local community. However, for many National Trust tenants, just like Anthony Denny, a National Trust property is quite simply the place they and their family call home. Thanks for listening to this first episode in a brand new series of the National Trust podcast. In this series, we'll be bringing you some fantastic stories of art, history and adventure. So to make sure you don't miss any of these episodes, follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify. And remember, the National Trust has a huge resource of audio programmes, which you can find at nationaltrust.org.au.
uk forward slash podcasts. We'll be back with a new episode in a fortnight. But for now, from me, Sean Douglas, goodbye. <laughs>